talking about Job's three friends, and really it's an introduction to them. Uh, just like I mentioned when we introduced the book or we introduce any book, there's, there's just some mechanics and some things that we need to go through so that we understand who they are. And that's what we're going to be doing today. But there will be some things that we're obviously going to be able to, to pull from this. But just to review, wh where have we been so far in the book of Job? Um, I want us just to be, rem be reminded of a couple of things. We were introduced to Job in Job 1, where it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And what's interesting is two times when, we'll see in just a moment, when Satan reported to God um, during those times and, and, and he asked uh, Satan to consider Job, he said these exact words. So God himself confirmed, affirmed what was obviously written prior to the Lord saying something. And so this is a man who, was, who had great integrity. It doesn't imply that he was perfect, but he had great integrity, and he kept himself right before God. But the Lord then initiated a test of Job's faith. Satan accused uh, God of protecting Job when he uh, presented himself to the Lord. And when God then initiated this test, and he said, Have you considered my servant Job? And he stated that God removed his if, if God removed his protection, that... Job would curse God to his face. Now, you can't get as any more opposite than this is an upright and blameless man to he's going to curse you to your face. You can't get any more opposite than that. And Satan then attacked Job twice up to the very limit of what God had set for him each time. So God set those limits but Satan attacked him as far as he possibly could within those limits. Satan's first attack either took or destroyed everything that Job had. And the second attack, uh, Satan struck Job with a terrible skin disease over his entire body. The scriptures tell us that it was on the soles of his feet all the way to the top of his head. And we gave... Uh, description of what that would have entailed. But on both occasions, Job did not sin against God. He kept his integrity, and what Satan said would happen did not happen. What God said he had observed, and what God thought would happen, not like wished, but knew would happen, happened. Okay? Um, but it's still an amazing thing to consider that all of this came against this man, and he passed the test. And one of the conclusions that we made was this. If our hearts are prepared, if we are living according to God's will, then whatever test God brings us, we have the opportunity to pass that test. Right. We think of Job as being some, someone who is you know, so distant from what we could possibly do, and that's not really the case. The purpose of the book is to show, partly, is to show that in this extreme case, Job was still extremely faithful. But it doesn't diminish some things that we might be going through. All right? So we just need to keep that in mind. Um, it's not to belittle or diminish who we are or what we're going through. is to help us understand that God is faithful through it.
okay? Last week, we considered Job's grief and, the, and really in general as the grief of a believer. What I want to do is just go through a couple of the slides that we had last week, the causes of Job's grief. Um, he grieved over many of the things that we might grieve over, that, that we might be tested in, that, that we might experience, that we would consider to be very negative. And although our list may not be complete, um, it's pretty well-rounded as far as a lot of the things that we would experience. We would not necessarily experience things in the same way that Job did, as we mentioned, but they're there. And in that light, we can relate to him. And it's interesting because one of the verses that we looked at was 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which, to, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So one of the things that we need to understand is the, the testing that we go through today is partly for the glory of the future. Amen. The glory of God first but also the joy that we're going to have in fulfilling God's will. Now, it's important for us to just pause and note, Job didn't know what was going on. Do you always know the ins and outs of everything that you have happening to you? Um, I'm not, you know, telling the story too much because we all know it. Job really never explicitly was told what was going on and why. <laughs> we might not ever find out. But if we examine our life and we understand that we are not being corrected, right? We're not being disciplined. Then the alternative is, and, and there are some, not necessarily God's testing. We might be suffering from someone else's poor choices and sin, Right? But then there are those things that God brings into our life that test us, that test our faith, that refine us to make us more like Jesus Christ. And so as we consider those things, we, we need to understand that we should be joyful in the fact that we are being, we are suffering as Jesus did. Not for the same purposes, but we are suffering as Jesus did. And then just to uh, bring to bear Christopher Ash's quote, I mentioned to you that uh, uh, I'm studying from a lot of sources, but, but uh, this, is, this is one of my primary sources this time. And he says, A true Christian believer may be taken by God through deep, times of deep and dark despair. This may happen to a man or woman who was affirmed by God as a believer before the darkness, who remains a believer in the darkness, and who will finally be vindicated by God as a believer after the darkness. He or she may be taken through the darkness even though he or she has not fallen into sin or backslidden from faith in Christ. This is a very important truth. I think you would agree with me. It's a very important truth. And what we talked about over the last couple of weeks here is that our experiences, and now I'm talking about ours together here, are not all the same. But your experiences are specifically yours that God ordained that God has set for your testing. So we don't determine 
what God is doing in somebody else's life, although we can maybe help them, and we'll see that today. But we recognize that maybe, let me, let me put it this way, I just, I just say it in plain terms. It is wrong for us to look at somebody else's life unless it's obviously a matter of sin. It's a matter of not trusting God, right? There's a difference. When we say, okay, you've grieved enough, right? You need to get over this now. It's not our right to do that. And we'll see even how Job's friends responded to his suffering. So today we are introduced to Job's friends. We are given limited information about these friends, but we will learn what we can about them. And there's some bearing in learning. Some of what we will cover today will be what I can best describe as speculation or reading between the lines a bit. And I, I just want you to understand what that means. We're not just going to wildly guess, oh, I think, I think it happened like this. But there, there's some uh, foundation for this as far as culture, as far as uh, some other scholarship and things, but we can't say for certain on some of these. But I'm going to give you some scenarios where it is something like this happened. You see where I'm going? And so my job was to try to bring to you as best I can what was going on so that we understand the context of what we're dealing with. All right? So as we move forward here, the first thing that we're... <laughs> touch some notes there. Uh, there we go. Is, is we introduced Job's friends. Um, there, there were three of them, as we know. And we see that in Job 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come to him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. We're going to hear these names of Job's friends many times. We know that these, there's conversations that are going to take place here. Uh, Eliphaz, we see here, was a Temanite, and so on. But we also need to mention that there was a fourth friend who will surface at the very end of their series of conversations as not mentioned now. His name is Elihu the Buzite. Ite simply means that they were of or from something or someone. An example is an Israelite. We use that term a lot when we talk about the children of Israel. And for the most part, we mean someone who not only lives in or is from Israel, but also someone who is descended from Jacob who God named Israel, okay? So a true Israelite is not just someone who lives in Israel, but they're from the lineage of Israel, Jacob, all right? And we do the same thing, you know, we might say it a little bit different way, you know, I'm a Toledoan, you know, I guess I'm a Willistonian. It sounds very, yeah, Willistonian. Anyway, so, so you get the idea, all right? Uh, but I guess even more specifically, I would be a Kygerite. Okay, so that's kind of how these, these are used. Each of his friends would have descended from the ite that is mentioned with them, and they would have lived in the region named after their ancestor. Eliphaz descended from Teman, one of Esau's descendants, and lived in Teman, a city in Edom. Bildad, Bildad descended from Naamah, and so on. So where did Job's friends live? We're going to refer to this map again, but 
to the, to the best of my ability, I, was, I tried to kind of be consistent with what we've studied and, and overlay a map that we had uh, to suggest where uh, Job's friends lived. We can be confident that Eliphaz came from Teman and Edom, and you can see basically roughly where Eliphaz is from based upon the map there with the arrows. Um, the other locations are only possibilities. And again, it's, it's not worth going through all of the, the different ways that they came to these conclusions, but I'm giving you a rough idea of where these men are from. Uh, if you look on, on our map that we've used before, you can see that Buzz was actually some, someone said was from the north, but others say that it was from the south, all right? And I'm going with the southern just based upon study. Some of that is not relevant, and we'll see that in the future, okay? But I want to look at an overview of his friends. Friend for us can mean a lot of things. Isn't that right? There are those we call friends by association or relationship connected to something else. My friend at school or my friend at work. My friend from college, my friend on the team that I'm a part of, my friend down the street, my friend at Quilters Club, or my friend at the gun range, right? They can vary quite a bit. My friend on Facebook or Snapchat or my Xbox friend. We got all kinds of friends. Others we consider good friends, right? We kind of qualify them. Friends by association can be good friends, but are often what we might call good acquaintances. There's no expectation or obligation to seek or to give advice or to meet someone else's needs. But when we're talking about a good friend, there is a reciprocal relationship there. There's something that's deeper. There's, there's, a, there's some ties that we have to that person beyond just associating with something. And for many of us, there are very few or maybe only one we would call a close or best friend. In the Old Testament, friendship is never used for what we would call an acquaintance or a casual friendship. There's an odd account in the scripture that illustrates this point that kind of gives us a description of friendship. We go back to the story when Absalom pulled off a coup against his father David. We know that uh, Absalom had designs on the throne, and so he, he uh, uh, ingratiated himself with the people. He turned their hearts toward him, and then he, he came upon uh, 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 David's dwelling, and David fled because there was no way he was going to be a stand against all those that Absalom had brought with him. David's friend Hushai met David as he and his, his household had fled Jerusalem. David found out that his own counselor, Ahithophel, had sided with Absalom. Ahithophel just happened to be Bathsheba's grandfather and may have still been bitter about how David had mistreated her. Kind of interesting, huh? So David sent Hushai to thwart to go against this Ahithophel's counsel. As Hushai offered his services, Absalom, David's son, asked this question in 2 Samuel 16. So Absalom said to Hushai, after he had said, I'm here to serve, right? Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? He wasn't saying acquaintance. And this was interesting. That word loyalty there is the Hebrew word hesed. We've looked at this before. It's the Old Testament 
uh, it's in the Old Testament is translated in many different ways. It can be translated mercy or loving kindness in different places. And what Absalom was asking Hushai was this, is this how you show your deep and committed friendship to your friend, David? By serving me, right? So this is how he was describing friendship. There are two Proverbs uh, among many Proverbs and other passages we could look at, but there are two Proverbs that really give a strong description of friendship. The first one is 1824. It says, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. Good principle, by the way, for all of us. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know, we say blood is thicker than water. The Bible says friendship can be thicker than that. Right? A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times. There's an unconditionalness to true friendship. And they're there when we need them. That doesn't sound like a casual acquaintance, does it? As a matter of fact, you've probably experienced that. Maybe something happens at school or something happens at work. Think about when people are teased for whatever reason. And we all got teased or are being teased, right? Some of you who are in school, it, it happens. They, they pick out a weakness and you get somebody that gets after you. And what happens to everybody else, right? Hmm. It's not happening to me, <laughs> right? Or they join in. Those aren't real friends, are they? We wouldn't call them good friends. A good friend doesn't turn on us. A good friend is born for adversity. The purpose of going into such detail is to show that these three friends were what we would at least describe as good friends. These were good friends of Job and good friends to Job. They were committed to Job and cared very much about him. And we will see how they demonstrated that friendship in just a little bit. But what were these three men like? The book indicates that they were older men, meaning later on we see them describing themselves in different ways. They describe themselves as wise and experienced. It is highly probable that they were prosperous men like Job, possibly regional noblemen. Now think about it. If we're talking about Job's friends, they would more naturally be his peers, right? They would, they would be living, experiencing life somewhat like him. If they were going to come to him, it wouldn't be, for example, Bildad's servant, right? That gets on some, you know, beast of burden and travels to come see Job. There wouldn't have been necessarily a connection there. So how did Job know them? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's worth asking. The author doesn't give any information on how they knew one another, but I believe, again, just based upon culture and other things, that a very reasonable guess would be that these men had a connection through trade or business. Think about it. Job was the greatest in the region, the greatest of the men of the East. He had a huge amounts of livestock and crops uh, during that time. He had staff to manage his estate, and he had the means to get his products to market. He had a fleet of camels. It would have fit that he traded with others in the region for what he both needed and wanted. 
These men had to have spent time with one another in order to have developed this deep of a friendship. Their friendship most likely grew over time, as any good friendship does, based upon just simply their interaction, probably again, starting with business. And they began to appreciate one another. So as we kind of think about that, what I want to do is now turn to the structure of their conversations. Now, I know that that's not point two, um, but I, I, I thought that it'd be better for our study to finish with the second point. So we're going to give a little parenthetical point here now uh, because we're talking about his friends. The structure of their conversations is related to his friends, but I don't want to end with that. That's kind of more of the technical aspects of things, but still important to understand. So let's look at this. The structure that we're going to see through multiple chapters. These conversations comprise 80% of the book. 80% of the book. Each friend spoke, then Job responded to them. So as you think of the outline, it went like this. Eliphaz accuses Job. That's what he did. He accused him. We'll get into that. Job responds to Eliphaz. Bildad accuses Job. Job responds to Bildad. Zophar accuses Job, and Job responds to Zophar. Now, in some of that, what they'll do is, is they'll borrow from one another's parts of the conversation, just like we would, right? Eliphaz says X. Well, Bildad is saying Y, but he also says, oh, and by the way, X matters here too, of what Eliphaz said. And so some of that takes place as well, all right? So now getting back to the structure here, there are three cycles of these conversations. The last cycle is much shorter, and Zophar doesn't even speak. Okay? I could say something like, Zophar, so good, but I won't. So, anyway. <laughs> so, as, as we're looking at this, structure does matter because we're going to see a pattern. And that pattern is there purposefully, all right? All three friends say similar things, but each has his own unique perspective. And God wants us to see those different perspectives. He has a purpose in that. Then Elihu joins late, contributing his own perspective. And what we're going to see is Elihu's perspective kind of looks like it, it patterns itself after the other ones, but it is different. And, and frankly, it's, fast, it's going to be fascinating to see. Now, here's the challenge in all of this. As I mentioned before, this is 80% of the book. For us to go through word for word, <laughs> everything these guys say uh, would take us into, I don't know, let's just say the Olympics might be on, okay, <laughs> as we're going through this. Uh, we may or may not last that long, but not because we're going to go through everything word for word. I had already framed this out that we're going to pull some of the main ideas from these and we're going to kind of give you some assignments on, on reading ahead so that you at least have the flavor of what's taking place. We didn't have an assignment this week because we're only looking at three verses. And you already read them, all right? So that's kind of where we're headed. Now, for just a few moments, I want to talk about the impact of their conversations. The obvious general takeaway is that the Lord has a purpose for 80% of the book in our lives, right? Now, again, most studies, not cutting anybody, 
Most studies hit the first couple of chapters and then the last several chapters where God responds to these men and to Job. And they kind of hit and miss a little, a little bit in the middle. All right? And like I say, I'm not being critical because the, the, that 80% is it's heavy. But it's also poetry. And so sometimes they say the same thing in different ways. And sometimes we, we had to kind of appreciate the flowery language which is important, it's descriptive language, but, but we can't get caught into that based upon how we want to study the book, all right? So here's what I'm trying to say. I, I just don't know that we would have the endurance of Job to go through his book word for word for word, all right? And I don't know that that's necessarily something we have to do, but we are going to go through principle by principle, and that's what we're going to focus on. Even though Job's three friends say similar things to Job, their unique perspectives will matter to us. I already mentioned that, but I wanted to state it again. That is the impact of the conversation. You know, how do I say this? You may have friends who come uh, from a certain perspective, but yet each one has their own unique perspective on things. And that's the idea here. All right. They have their own unique perspective on things, even though they might think similarly. These conversations will reveal the character of Job and his friends. Are not conversations revealing? When you talk to someone, you get to know who they are. They reveal themselves to you by what they say, by what they don't say, by how they say it. And that's the same thing that's going to happen here. We will gain insight into how to minister to friends. Um, I hate to tell you this, but Today, we're going to learn some good things, and this is kind of sort of in the beginning of these conversations, but a lot of what we're going to be looking at are some bad things, some things not to do, and we will you know, document those because we don't want to be, frankly, in those ways like some of Job's friends, all right? And Job will continue sharing about his sufferings, and that's important, too. It's not like he suffered, and then they talk, and then God responds. No. He suffered and is suffering during the conversations. We can't lose sight of that. Job doesn't lose sight of that. Okay? He lets them know that he's still hurting. So now that brings us back to Job's friends Job's friends showed up. What do you mean by that? It means they were friends. They did something, right? In Job 2.11, we already read this, but I want you to see this again. It says, uh, Job's friends heard of all the adversity that had come upon him. They're, they're, they're named. It says they came from their own places, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. Now, we had our map earlier, and I just want you to understand the logistics here, partly because I want us to see Job's mindset as well when his friends arrive. So I'm going to explain this to you, but you see some arrows on this map. This is the travel between Job's friends. We really have no concept of the distance between places or how much time it would have taken to travel between them. We don't live there, and we don't travel the same way that they did. Travel time in between the friends would have been conservatively 10 to 12 days. 
10 to 12 days. And by the way, those are camel days. <laughs> right? Not them just walking. Those are camel days. And I, I, I know it sounds weird, but I really did some research on this. And a camel, at best, can travel 40 miles in one day, and that's pushing them. They can average 30 miles in one day for X amount of days, but even then, they've got to stop and rest and then really rest. All right? So this is urgent, but it's only as urgent as the camel walks. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's as fast as it can go. You know, we, we, we act like we call 911 and they just poof, appear in our room where we have a need, right? I mean, talk about being spoiled. Eliphaz would have lived closest to Teman. Uh, I'm sorry. He would live closest as Teman was between four and five days travel from where we believe that Job lived. If we assume that Eliphaz heard about Job first because he lived closest, he could have sent messengers to the other friends. And that's what these, these lines represent. So he could have sent a, a, a circuit rider, so to speak, to Zophar and then to Bildad. And then south, he could have sent some, a rider down to Elihu to let them know what happened to Job. I don't think, I don't really believe it could have happened that that word went out and they all heard about it and then started talking. You see what I mean? I, I, I think that that word got out in a little bit different way. But either way, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll see what we're going here. So if we assume that... A, that he heard that and sent these messages out, they would have responded to the need, confirmed what they planned to do, and that met somewhere uh, as they traveled to see Job because they arrived together. So think about it. Again, as you look at, at what represents Eliphaz, word would have gone out from him, then come back, all right? Everybody's on board, and then word would have had to gone back out again. All right, everybody's coming, Right of these friends. We don't know. There, there could have been other people that were contacted. I have no idea. But the bottom line is, these four guys worked it out in this very cumbersome, multiple-day you know, uh, time frame that we're talking about so they could come together. Let me emphasize that. Come together to minister to Job's needs. So no phone, no lights, no motor cars. Right? Maybe heard that before in our past. That's what we're dealing with here. So this entire process may have taken up to three, I'm sorry, two months before they arrived to see Job, which means that Job had suffered for about two months with these sores, with the loss of all that was at one point his especially his family, before his friends arrived. Two months sitting in ashes. Two months scraping his sores. Two months thinking about all that he had lost. The scriptures told us there also that Job's friends purposed to mourn with him. Mourning with is emphasizing or having uh, is, is empathizing or having compassion. They emotionally related to Job. 
Job's friends also purposed to comfort him. Comforting is putting our compassion into action. They desire to ease Job's pain and to bring him some relief. Now, let's think about that in our own context. You ever been in a store, right? And you got this beautiful little child running and they're like maybe three years old. And you're like, oh, look, at they're also full of joy. And then trip, fall flat on their face. They don't have to fall as far as we do anymore, right? And, and, and what happens? They kind of pick their head up and you're thinking, okay, you know, five, four, three. <laughs> right? And, and what, what do we do? We're like, oh, this poor child, they were so joyful and now they're crying and their lips bleeding, right? Our, our, our compassion goes out to them. We empathize with them. But if we then turn around and figure out which yogurt we want to buy, right, it, we haven't done anything for them. There's nothing wrong with that per se, okay? They emo we emotionally identified with that poor little child that hurt themselves. But when we have compassion on somebody, we go over and we pick them up and we dust off their little jeans and we tell them, you're going to be okay. We might even put a little hanky out and, and dab their, their, their chin, dab their lip. That is comforting, right? So they wanted to do both of these things. And then we see in Job 2, verses 12 and 13, And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. And so they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Job's friends were moved with compassion. The text says that when they saw him from afar, from far away, they didn't even recognize him. Now, I don't know exactly how this wording is in the original. I mean, you know, we, we, we get what we can. But they obviously saw and knew who he was, but he looked nothing like he remembered him looking like. They had heard of Job's losses. They had heard of his suffering, but they were overwhelmed by Job's, Job's appearance. And they were carried away by their emotions. In other words, when they got into his presence, even from afar, it became even more real to them. Throwing dust up in the air was another sign of mourning, like when Job sat in ashes and tossed them on his head. It, it, it had them relate to, it, it, a lot of people, as we talked about before, you know, it either relates to just that, that very basicness of life or, or even death itself with the ashes, but they were, they were just expressing their sorrow. And like Job, they tore their outer clothes and they cried. Yes, grown men, even before they got into his immediate presence, were crying over what they saw. And then we see here again that Job's friends stayed by his side. No one says anything for seven days. Not seven minutes. <laughs> not even seven hours. Seven full days. Now some say that they were gathering their thoughts. Others feel they were being polite, waiting for Job to speak. 
But I really believe the best perspective is that they recognize Job's deep sorrow, as the scriptures tell us here very plainly, and simply sat with him. There are other times in scripture when mourning took place for seven days. We're not going to talk about those times, but the point is this. There was somewhat of a custom with a deep and terrible loss to mourn for a period of time. And so they allowed that time to go by. Now, Job is the one, as we know from chapter 3, is the one who responded to them. They waited. But here's the point. They waited. They just sat there and they were with him. Now, you know what? I'll wait on that. But I just, I just want us to, 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 to get the bigger picture here, okay? These are men who made some sacrifices. These are men who went a long distance. These are men who were moved because this was their friend who was in trouble. And they cared about him. Which brings us to, okay, how does this apply to us? First, what I want to do is, and I didn't want to end with this verse, with this passage. It's a little on the negative side just because of the context, but we can glean some things from it. But then I want to talk about it afterward. James 2, verses 14 through 17. What does it profit, my brethren? My brethren, right? Those of us who gather together as a body of believers. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Now, let me pause there for a minute. We want to keep the context. What's coming up is an illustration. But the point is this. We can't say that we have faith in Christ if we have nothing to back it up. We talked recently about the parable of the sowers, and the whole point was this. The seed is sown in someone's heart, if it even gets in there, right? The, the, the um, uh, stony ground, right? The hard-packed path. Where, where the seed doesn't even penetrate. But there has to be some fruit that comes about. Not just this initial excitement. Because what happened? Things came, life was brought to bear and they went away. There was no real staying power in their acknowledgement of who Christ was. So if we don't have a faith accompanied by works, it's really not any faith at all, okay? I, I, I'm telling you right now, I am a proud member of Planet Fitness. I haven't been there in months. <laughs> See? These are my works. <laughs> they don't match, okay? <laughs> so you get the idea. All right, so we're going to move on. Thank you. Anyway, <laughs> so here's the illustration. If a brother or sister, a brother or sister, a fellow believer, not just some random person, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, again, an extreme example, and one of you says to them, excuse me, let me, <clears throat> depart in peace. Be warmed, be filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? 
Thus also, by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I believe in Jesus. And I have nothing to show for it. Now, let's use the illustration to understand what we're talking about here. Did you hear about Job? Yeah. That's rough stuff. Yeah. He's our friend. Yeah. Wish somebody would do something. Yeah. That's not what his friends did. They got engaged. How can we show up for one another? First, be there. Sacrifice your time, your resources, and your comfort. Be there for someone in need. And yes, it's in need. Sympathize and bring comfort by doing what you can to make a difference. It may not be something physical that you do or that I do. It may be something that is emotional and spiritual, but it's still something tangible, right? It's not just feeling for them. Sometimes what someone is going through may be more obvious than other times. In other situations, it may take some time to become aware of what the person is going through and how we can help. But we still need to do these things. And then the last thing, I think, and, okay, consider what we're talking about here. Consider what logistics these men had to go through, but act in a timely fashion. Folks, I really believe they got there as soon as they could, even though it was a couple of months. Act in a timely fashion. Now, in closing, I just want us to understand this. And this isn't one of those things where, you know, yes, do this, do that, do the other thing, and then, oh, we're just going to pull back and make you feel good now. That's not what I'm saying when I say this. I don't know that most of us need seven full days of someone sitting literally across from you. I'm not sure that most of us could really do that. And by the way, this kind of backs up the idea that they were probably Job's peers. They probably were rich men because who could have done this? Yeah, I'm going to go see my friend. It's going to take me about uh, 10 days to get there, and then we're going to sit for seven days. Then we're going to talk for a while. Now, I understand that they maybe didn't know about the seven days, but they were committed to go. You see where I'm going? So logistically, not all of us might be able to help as much, but we're talking about an extreme situation. But if we can just consider what God's word says beyond James 2 about how we love one another and all these different things and what that, what that means then sometimes it is our collective help that we give. So we have to know that there's an issue. We have to be able to meet those needs. But in meeting those needs, we make sure that we are living sacrificially, that we are giving of ourselves, that we're maybe even giving something up. And again, just like when we talked about with our earthly resources and giving them to the Lord, when we're talking about these types of resources, if we're all booked up, then we don't have any room to do that. You with me?
We have to be available in order to help one another. Now, sometimes it is. It's, it's, it's doing something with our schedule. But other times, it's simply making sure that ahead of time, we have prioritized other people. So as we consider all of these different things, folks, remember, these are opportunities. These are opportunities. As we help someone through, as God would lead, a test that they might be going under. I don't think it's totally out of the realm of possibility by saying you helping someone else may be how God tests you. <laughs> right? Is your faith real? Is your everyday trust in God and obedience to Him real? I'm going to put someone in your life that has some needs and it's going to make you uncomfortable. Let's not forget, there is great joy awaiting us, whether we're serving or whether we're being tested. Both have promises attached. Great joy is awaiting us for being faithful in whatever role God has given us to do. So as we consider all of this, um, well, I, 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 can't, I can't wish Job's experiences on anyone else. And frankly, Job didn't wish them on himself, remember? He had this just back-of-his-mind fear. I, I knew this was going to happen. Things were going too well. <laughs> That's what he said. But God says testing is going to come. The difference is, and this is one thing we can learn from Job, we shouldn't walk around with life in life as if God has a baseball bat hovering over us. Right? Let's see what I can do to mess with his mind today. Let's see how I can make her life miserable. That's not God's motive. That's not his intent. And I've heard people, one of, one of the almost universal responses people have given me to this, to this uh, uh, series so far is, and you know, as I look at my life, it's like, you know, I don't think God's asking, asking uh, Satan, have you considered, you know, so-and-so? And then they put their own name in there, right? Well, that may or may not be the case. But again, we're talking about an extreme test. Testing's still going to come. We need to remember the purpose behind it. It's for God's glory and it's for our betterment. Amen. Even if it's not the betterment of the here and now, it's the confirmation of our faith. It's the confirmation of our faith. And so I just want to encourage us to endure. But I also want to encourage us to help others endure. Just one last thing. If this is going to work, if you have a need, and 
This is going to sound really awful. It's just ministry experience. Please take it for what it's worth. Sometimes you deal with people who seem to have a perpetual need. I'm not saying I know anybody else in this congregation. I've just, it's, it's happened in my past, right? Where it's like, okay, you know, so don't, someone's going to, someone's going to say out there, I know it's, I better not say something, Pastor Scott. He's going to think that I'm like one of those needy people. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But you know what I'm getting at? Like everything is a crisis. That's different than a series of crises, okay? And, and so we kind of, you know, I don't know how to deal with that, right? But then again, we have people in our lives at times where they're just kind of, you know, gutting it out alone. So we've got these extremes. And so my warning is to those of us who are gutting it out alone, don't feel like you're coming as a person who just has a constant need in air quotes. Okay? The body is here for your needs. Are there limits as to what we can possibly do? Yes. Guess what? There were horrific limits to what these three friends could do. They couldn't bring the dead back. They couldn't repopulate his, his servants. They couldn't do those things. They couldn't take back. They couldn't, he, they couldn't heal him. But they still showed up. And they determined that it wasn't just going to be, wow, Joe, we feel for you. When they said, we're here for you, they said, we want to help you. Now, here's the sad thing. And this is where we can be better than these three friends. They didn't do a very good job of what they said they were going to do. And that's, that's the ugly side of what we're going to see in the rest of the book. All right? But we, we can. And by the way, we do. This is demonstrated in our church. This isn't a, we're going to start at this point and now we're going to do it right. It's an encouragement to continue to do what we are doing. Amen? Amen. Amen. Don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. And don't let others go it alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's, it's never really easy to admit that we are too weak for our circumstances. That we need someone's help. Sometimes we can't even admit that to you. And so I pray, Lord, that we will get over that. We know, Father, there are different practical levels of friendship. And as we examine that, I pray that as we apply that good friendship and as we have people that are close to us, that we will demonstrate what these three men did. But Lord, I also pray that as we consider the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and there is a uniqueness of, of friendship there, that we will show up for one another's needs. God, what's amazing about your local church is that you've brought everybody here that you want here. It doesn't mean that more can't join. 
It just simply means that you have given us one another. What a, what a beautiful gift. And so I thank you for the different ways that we serve, the different ways that we support one another. And I pray, Father, again, that you'll just motivate us as we see the day approaching to encourage one another in good works, to fulfill our part of the vine, to show that we have a true faith. All of those things, all the above, part of which is by making a difference in somebody else's life. We have you as the ultimate example. Talk about showing up. In the fullness of time, Christ came, took on flesh, and gave that flesh for us. Literally was killed. Destroyed. Violated abused and we haven't even gotten to the point where you poured our sin on him the wrath the penalty the judgment of all that we had done we thank you for showing up we thank you for your compassion and we even thank you that as we talked about last week and remember today, that Isaiah would say that the Messiah would be one acquainted with grief. You know, you know us, you know who we are, you know what we're experiencing, and sometimes the things that we experience come right from your hand. And so as we consider all of that, again, we just want to place ourselves in your care. Lord, give us the strength, guide us with your spirit to be able to navigate times of testing. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.